to the Wisdom Toolbox podcast, previously known as the Heartspace podcast. My name is Nicola and I'm thrilled to have you here. I recently decided to rebrand and refresh the podcast to align it more to the offerings on our website, thewisdomtoolbox.com. So do check that out if you enjoy the topics in this podcast and subscribe to the podcast and our email list for more offerings and tools as they are released. But for now, enjoy. Hi and welcome to the Heartspace podcast. In today's episode, I'll be sharing a recording of a live class that I taught at Kagyu Samizong. And the topic of the class was to discuss the concept of illusory form. Now, illusory form just means that the world that we see and interact with is not as solid and structured and real as we may think it to be. So in other words, a lot of it is a construct of our ego and we grasp onto things and make things and not just physical things, but our thoughts, our emotions, everything in our life, we make them into real solid concepts. So in a lot of spiritual traditions, especially in the East, in the Buddhist teachings, for instance, a lot of focus is given to understanding this concept of emptiness and learning how to see past form into empty nature. Empty not meaning completely devoid um, of anything, but just not in the construct how we see it as a something so fixed and permanent. And to, to aid the discussion, I did a review of the book by lucid dreaming teacher Andrew Holacek. And the book is called Dreams of Light. I'll put the reference to the book in the the notes so that if you are interested, you can take a look. It's a brilliant book. And in the book, he goes into a lot of detail around how science has been able to back up a lot of a lot of these teachings. And um, there's a lot of fascinating information in the book for anyone who really enjoys understanding consciousness, understanding the science and how it connects with science. I can highly, highly recommend this book. I've actually read it through completely twice and I keep it next to me and often refer back to it on certain topics. So it is a live class. I hope the audio should be um, clear when I speak. Perhaps when I do receive any questions, you may need to just listen a little closer. The volume's a bit low, but I hope you do enjoy. And I hate to ask this because it's not in my nature, but please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast if you enjoy it, because it helps me to get good feedback in order to deliver content that's more relevant and helpful. Enjoy. So the topic for today is all about the practices of illusory form. And the, 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 the title for the talk that we picked was From Rapture to Rapture, which I thought was such a lovely, um, lovely saying. And I took that from the book that I'm going to be discussing a lot about today. The book is a brilliant book called Dreams of Light. And it's all about the profound daytime practice of lucid dreaming. So how do we take the practices of lucid dreaming but bring them into our waking daily lives? And the author of the book is a Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Andrew Holacek. 
He is um, a very highly esteemed teacher and has done many of his own retreats and teaching and has several books on, on the topics as well. So in, um, in this, it's quite a broad topic, but at the same time, it's a very simple, simple topic. And um, we are going to be looking at how can we be more lucid in our day-to-day -day lives? How can these things help us in a very practical sense? I'm just going to change the screen quickly to view so that I can see everybody. Um, there we go. Okay. So what I thought was quite nice is I had a look and I thought, what are these words, rapture and rapture? What are we actually talking about here? And quite interestingly, the word rapture is defined as either breaking or suddenly bursting. But also interesting, it's the breach of a harmonious relationship. And if we look at ourselves, if we look at our lives, um, although we might not be, thank goodness, living through a state of complete breaking or, or bursting all the time, there's still this undercurrent of not being in a harmonious relationship, both internally and externally with the world that we see around us. So in a way, we are constantly in the state of, of rapture until we can recognize our true self and attain that awareness and enlightenment. We are, in a sense, in the state of rapture. And in contrast, we have this beautiful word rapture. And what's interesting about the word rapture is it means a feeling of intense pleasure or joy. So it's the sense that when you remove the rapture, when you can remove the things that keep us stuck, the natural state that emerges from underneath that is this feeling of, of joy. And really that's what our path is, is all about and all these practices that we do. Now, at the base, we know this from all the, the teachings and learnings that we've done. At the base of all suffering is this misperception um, or incorrect perception that we separate. And this comes very much from the sense of ego, the sense of self that we have so um, created for ourselves over, over lifetimes and certainly entrenched much more within this life. And this whole body, so where does this section of illusory, or where do these teachings of illusory form fit in? So if we look at the teachings of dream yoga, dream yoga is, you can call a subset of illusory form, but the illusory form teachings actually permeate all, all different parts of the Buddhist teachings and not in all different in all different aspects. And it, it's actually said that the illusory form teachings are both the beginning and the end of our path, because we often start on our path questioning the nature of reality, questioning our lives. And it's this illusory form that gets us interested. Um, and quite right at the end of our path, the highest masters that get to the Dzogchen and Mahamudra practices, this is what they are ultimately practicing in, in a more advanced way. But the teachings in themselves are extremely simple and easy for all of us to, to relate to. In the book, he says that it's, it's a, it's a two-directional street. So what we're doing in lucid dreaming is we're trying to take our daytime consciousness, um, our awareness, and wake up within a dream. But with illusory form, we're trying to take the dreamlike nature and recognize that within our waking consciousness. 
So this is why the practices work together. But for many of us, the dream practices and the nighttime practices are not that accessible. It's, it's hard to be consistent with them, but we can be consistent with our daytime practices. And that's why the more we can practice and recognize the dreamlike nature of our reality, clearly, deeply look into form, into sound, into our thoughts, the more we can get that expanded awareness, which should also then aid our, our nighttime practices and help us in, in being able to practice ultimately day and night. So this is how it all, um, fits together. And he says that um, the, the, if we, another word for illusory is empty. So we can look at, and we've all heard this word emptiness. In Buddhism, it's often said that everything, the ground of everything is emptiness. And if we look at this word emptiness, we're basically saying that form is empty in nature. So it's, it's body, speech, and mind. Form is empty in nature, sound is empty in nature, and mind is empty in nature. Now, emptiness, again, is a concept that we hear all the time, but is sometimes difficult for us to grasp. And in some of the teachings, they talk about emptiness in these beautiful, very poetic ways. You know, a bubble on a, on a river, um, a rainbow, lightning in a cloud it's very beautiful and poetic but maybe not something that is easy for us to grasp and to use in our day-to-day -day lives so what the aim of this book is going into teaching us very much around how to understand emptiness in a very practical day-to-day -day way once we've got a grasp on what we're talking about we can then go into the practices on that emptiness and um, there's certain practices that he gives on the topic. So because we're going to do this in a two-part um, talk, today we'll look at, go into a little bit more around emptiness and understanding that. And I'm going to bring in, in a lot of the book, he talks a lot about the science behind all of this. What does science and neuroscience tell us? What, you know, it's fascinating. It's not that we're trying to use science to prove these ancient teachings, but rather to support it. And, you know, the Dalai Lama is a very big supporter of understanding quantum physics. And they, some of the Rinpoche say it doesn't matter if you incorporate science, nature, Dharma, whatever you use in your path, as long as you get to the truth, that is the most important thing. So for us being very analytical, or I speak for myself, um, understanding the science and what science says is actually very, very helpful. And when I studied this book in detail last year, um, it really, really, it shifted a lot of things for me to get that true understanding, not just an understanding that I'd thought I had. It, it really helped me with, with integrating everything together. Now, he says that there's three tools that actually come from Zogchen, around a way for us to study these concepts and difficult or could be difficult things such as emptiness. And ultimately what we are wanting to do is the eight noble truths. The very first of these is right view. View, which means understanding, is extremely, extremely important because if we have the right view, all the other practices that we do, all the meditation, everything is done with that as the as our starting point. So developing our right view 
is critically important for our path and our practice. And he says that this is kind of the intellectual and understanding of it. But over time, we move from just being intellectual to actually integrating that understanding within our being. But making that jump isn't always that clear. And so for that, he shares these three, what's called the three wisdom tools from the teachings. And we can use this as we learn and study. And these three tools is firstly hearing. So hearing means not just physically hearing, but it also could include studying, reading, listening to talks, whatever it is that, that you do in order to assimilate and um, learn the, the teachings and the truth. And that this is where we can include things such as science and so forth. But hearing is a conceptual and intellectual exercise. It can only take us so far. And we shouldn't make the mistake in thinking if we can understand something um, that 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 is that is all of the path. There's a lot more. There's we still have to integrate it within our being. So the next tool is contemplation, and he says contemplation is now it's a mixture. It's a little bit conceptual, but it's also using our heart. So it's taking this very intellectual idea. It's bringing it into our heart. It's feeling it. It's allowing it to mix with space. It's giving it room as we contemplate. And it's a deeper level of, of understanding and we're starting to integrate. And then the very third, last final step is meditation, which doesn't necessarily mean just sit, a seated meditation, but it's, it's, it's dropping into the presence. It's having the idea integrate within your very being. Um, we, that then you can say you, you have realized the view. So, these three tools are, are very helpful. And what I would invite you to do is, for instance, today we, we hear around what he has to say. And I see there's a question. Thanks, Bern, for answering. The, the, his name is Andrew Holacek. But today we'll listen and talk about some of the teachings. But then take some time in the next couple of weeks, perhaps before we do the next session, which will probably be in um, two or three weeks' time, to really contemplate this. Just you know, let it ruminate, give it some space, give it some room and allow these concepts and ideas to start filtering into your very being and into your, into your life in a less intellectual way. So on that, we'll start. So he says that the idea of emptiness is essentially the idea of egolessness. It's, it's an idea that we have removed the sense of self and we are, we've effectively, we sometimes we hear the term ego death. You know, we've, we've gone through this process where we have, we've removed the misperception that we are separate and that there is an I. And in Sanskrit, the word for emptiness is shunyata. And often this is translated as voidness or nothingness, which sometimes can make us fall into a bit of a misunderstanding that we may be a slight nihilistic perspective or that there really is nothing. It can be very, very confusing and it can take years to truly understand what, what we're talking about. And for this, he uses the word openness. He said, instead of using the word emptiness, think of the word openness. Openness is a, is a bit more of an accessible term for us to relate to. And he says, but in order for something to be open, we have to have the idea that there's something that else is contracted. So we have openness and we have 
contraction. So it's that contrast that we're, that we're going to work with. And he gives this beautiful statement. He says that meditation is nothing more than a habituation to openness. We are training ourselves to be open. That's, that's basically, it's as simple, simple and as, um, beautiful as that. So within this sense of, um, contrast of, of closeness and openness, he says we are very used to understanding what this tightness, what this closeness is. And the more we tighten up and close, the more we actually strengthen our ego. And I think we can all relate to this. You know, the more, the, the stronger our opinions, the more we've got the sense of, of I, we, we strengthening that contrast between ourself and, and other. And he said that there's this, a problem though with this contraction and that because we've had a contraction, which he calls a primary contraction, we've had this primary contraction for so many lifetimes that we've actually forgotten that it's there in the first place. So he said, imagine you've got a cramp in your calf. We all have experienced a cramp in our body at some point in our lives. That cramp is there. And when you release, you feel this great sense of, of relief. Now, if you were born with a cramp in your calf and you lived like that, you would never know that it was there because you've always had the cramp. And this is what he says we should think of as the primary contraction, which is the primary belief in a sense of self. And that primary contraction is so difficult for us to firstly recognize and release because we've literally always carried it or carried it around with us for a very, very, very long time. So he then talks about secondary contractions. So even though we're walking around in this very cramped up, closed state, we can still perceive other contractions, other things that make us close, irritations, agitations, traffic, an annoying um, boss, all these different situations that come along in our life that act as secondary contractions. So even though we have this primary contraction, ah, 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 as an I, we still have struggles and, and um, these things that come along all the time. And in our practice, we usually are working first and foremost to release the secondary contractions. So a lot of our practice, a lot of the meditation we do is to help to really um, release these secondary contractions. And then we can get to that core of, of releasing the primary contraction. But when we're developing the view, again, if we remember right view, to understand by understanding the what that there is no primary contraction it's just an in, incorrect view um gives us a, a path that helps us know where it is that we're going and also if we are able to work on that primary contraction it would automatically naturally release all of these secondary contractions a good um example of a secondary contraction is actually having a nighttime dream so a nighttime dream is a secondary contraction within the primary contraction. And that's why he says the field of lucid dreaming fits within this broader topic of illusory form because it's waking up in a secondary contraction within the primary contraction. Um, and that we can use as a pathway in order to release this, um, the illusion of, of a sense of self. 
So he talks a lot about this um, this contraction and how we can work with it. And it's really simple and practical. You know, he says you can go around in your day and as soon as you feel you, you feel that sense of, of contraction within your body, but even within your mind, you know, sometimes we become so stuck on a thought, we become so stuck on an idea on something, recognize that as the primary contraction and allow yourself to open. Now, the texts all talk about in the instructions, they, you've probably heard it before, I'm sure Mel said it many times, is mixing our minds with space. And to mix our mind with space, it's not that we blindly accept everything or try and develop a blank mind and go empty, but it's rather that we are allowing room for a broader perspective. We're giving space to an issue. And we are, this is, this is how we start to release this um, primary contraction. And what I love is he gives um, an analogy of, he says, you know, ecologists these days, we all talk about climate change and reducing our carbon footprint. But the most beneficial thing we can do for the world is actually reduce our personal footprint, the, uh, your sense of self, your egoic footprint. The more you can release that, the greater the benefit for the whole. And this is also why he said we find doing helping others, um, you know, in our days, it's such a wonderful feeling when you're able to help somebody else. It's because you're actually acting in a selfless way and you're experiencing that feeling of, of openness. So uh, uh, an exercise that um, he gives is, he says, cramp your body up, you know, we can all actually even do it, like close your eyes, take a very, very deep breath in, hold your breath, clench all the muscles in your body, clench your fists, clench your neck, shoulders, stomach, thighs, squeeze, 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 and then release and allow the breath to come out. He said it's that sense of releasing that we're after. It's not that we're trying to attain a new state of, of openness because that's acting or thinking about something in a very conceptual way. So as part of understanding emptiness, he um, says we've got two parts to it. One is to understand what emptiness is, which is what we've been discussing now, which the easiest way to think about it is this openness. I found that very helpful personally. And the other way to understand it is what isn't it? You know, so we understand what it is, but what isn't emptiness? So here he says, Emptiness is not materialism. So it's, it's against things that we see in, in form. Again, not just physical things, but body, speech, and mind. So it's attachment to form. And that will go into now when we talk a little bit about the science behind these things, which is really, really interesting. But it's not um, materialism, but also it's not a state of, it's not something that we are trying to achieve. Emptiness is not a, like a state of nirvana or great bliss that we think we are trying to attain. And he, he, he gives a quote by a monk, a Zen monk called Suzuki Roshi, who says, emptiness, ap apologies, enlightenment was my biggest disappointment. And 
If you really, really think about that, it's so profound because what he's teaching us in that is there's no state to attain that something we don't already have. The state of enlightenment, the state of emptiness and openness is complete ordinariness. It's completely natural and ordinary. So it's not, it would be a mistake to think of, for instance, nirvana as a state of being that we are trying to achieve. He said that is also dualistic thinking. That is much like in religions when you have an idea of a heaven or another state of being that you're trying to achieve. Don't think of it as something that is a different realm or a different state of being. In fact, it is just completely natural and ordinary. And this is what Suzuki Roshi says when he says enlightenment was my greatest disappointment. There is no, you know, um, place that you're going to achieve at the end of the day. It's coming home fully within yourself. And he said what often happens in our spiritual path, and certainly he said from his experience working with people, is that initially when we start a path, we might have some experiences that bring us we have these extraordinary experiences or a feeling of great bliss or a very strong energetic feeling. And he said, the greater the experience, it's actually a reflection of the greater the contraction. Because if, if like what we did right now, if your whole body is contracted and, and tense, releasing a cramp like that for the very first time is going to feel this immense feeling of bliss. But the, the more you release the contraction, the more you stretch it out, the, the feeling of normalness or naturalness becomes less and less and less apparent. So in fact, as you go along your path, it's not that you're going to be having more great states of bliss, but rather that you're actually going to have less experience because you're getting more back to your own natural state. And he even says, you know, you get, which I think we can all see, you get a lot of these like new age gurus um, that, that teach on, you know, they had this incredible kundalini awakening experience and then they, they can teach you how to do this. The, the aim becomes chasing the bliss. But actually, we want to move past that in these teachings. That is part of the illusion. We want to move past that and we want to go back into complete naturalness um, of being. So he said that as part of um, what, what this um, understanding what emptiness isn't, we want to look to deconstruct our reality. Because we have this idea of things being the way that they are around us, we need to use tools to help us to deconstruct our reality. And what's so interesting, and we'll touch on when I go, I'll read you some of the stuff from the scientific studies that they've done, is that the reason that humans perceive ourselves to be separate, the reason we see the world in the way that we do, is because 60% of the part of our brain that are dedicated to our senses, the visual cortex, is 60% of our brain, whereas other senses, for instance, hearing is only two to three percent and so forth. It's it's much lower. So we are first and foremost visual beings, and therefore whatever we see, we take to be um, what we believe. Now we know that other 
animals, for instance, see different light rays. Um, I think snakes can see an infrared. You've got certain insects that see an ultraviolet. There's different rays of, of light that we can't even perceive. So already, it, it, that, that in itself shows us that we are only seeing a very narrow, narrow glimpse of the world. But because we take that to be our reality, we effectively have already limited our, our viewpoint um, in that way. So we need to learn about why is it that we perceive things in these ways. And, and quite interestingly, they say that the reason is that as a human animal, first and foremost, we are animals. And as human animals, we only needed to evolve. That was the evolution allows us the almost the lowest common denominator for our survival. So for our survival as humans, we didn't need to perceive other, um, others, for instance, um, bandwidths of light. We only needed to perceive what we perceive. So this is, it's an inherent inborn limitation. And the solution that all, all that we can see is the truth is what, what it is that we're trying to bust through. And he says a very helpful thing we can start to do is to, Go around your day and ask the question, am I dreaming? He said, just any one of us can do that. Ask it driving in your car, walking in the shop, in as many circumstances as you are. And it already starts to shift your framework. Am I dreaming? Could this be a dream? Um, helps us to already start to see the world in a different way. And he said, another fun thing to do is to have earphones in that obviously are not connected to music or anything, but just walk around with earphones on, especially the noise-canceling headphones. It also helps to shift the way that we perceive things when we cut out a sense like that. Um, and then he said another simple exercise is to, when you're sitting quietly, blink your eyes rapidly and look around the room, almost like how you would get in a movie, a flickering a flickering screen because science actually tells us that is actually the way that we do see we see in this flicker this flicker format but our brain has fused it all together to make it seem one consistent stream and he actually uses the word con dash fusion and con is comes from the root word which means with fusion obviously means joined together but when we add those two together confusion we literally have the state of being that we are all in at all times. So it's, it's really interesting how we've joined this world in a particular way. And that's what's actually causing us confusion. Um, a large part. So there's the world that we see that causes this confusion, but then there's also our thoughts and perceptions that also causes confusion. And Technotan, whom I'm sure all of us, um, know, gives beautiful teachings on changing our perceptions and looking past the labels that we give to things. So he famously asked the question, looking at a piece of paper and saying, you know, do you see the cloud that's within this piece of paper? Because without the cloud, the rain wouldn't fall. Without the rain, the tree wouldn't grow. And without the tree, the paper wouldn't be here in front of us. So by learning to see deeply, which he calls interbeing, we're able to form new relationships. We, we're able to see the world in a completely more expansive way. 
And using labels, our language also holds us back. It also puts us in shackles um, because we label absolutely everything. We go for a walk and instead of just enjoying the presence and being in the now, we labeling, we saying, look at that beautiful tree. Isn't the sun extra lovely today? Um, the, the, you know, the, the sunlight beautiful. Um, look, look at that. We labeling, pointing out absolutely everything. And there's another really good writer. His name's David Avram. And he's an ecologist and a philosopher. And he writes this beautiful book called Becoming Animal. And it's all about his journey of going deep into meditation and how and meditating on our animal nature and, and, and the wilderness. And um, part of that, he goes off on like a long retreat by himself in the wild. And he said after a couple of weeks, he stopped thinking through everything that he was doing. And he was obviously not talking to anybody. And in that process, he he stopped labeling the things that he saw around him as, you know, tree, bird, and himself as a human. And he said he felt that everything was just connected as part of one organism. So that instead of being separate or a separate part, he could really truly feel himself as part of this one living organism of the earth. And that came through dropping away those labels and the names and and all the tags that we give to, to everything. So our perceptions and um, and labels are definitely something that we we can all work on, and you know Technotan I think is is just explains it in in such a simple profound way. I know um, some of us here have studied a lot of his work, but I can if you haven't, I definitely would recommend reading some of his books and listening to some of his talks because it's very very helpful on this topic. So. A large part of the book, the whole third section of of the book that we're looking at today is dedicated to the scientific view. And he said that because we're trying to develop this right view, changing our perceptions is really hard work and therefore the more methods that can help us is really, really beneficial. So he says that we have at the heart of all of our illusions, there's three core illusions that we need to break. The first one is the illusion that everything is solid. The second is that everything is lasting or permanent. And the third is that everything is independent. And he then, I mean, it's very detailed. I'm not going to go into any of that detail today. I'll just give you a few headline points. But in the illusion of solidity, we know through quantum physics that particles, so we are all composed of of atoms, uh, trillions, billions of atoms right now within us and everything that we have around us and can see. And these atoms are made up of of particles. And these particles are 99.99999 to 39s empty space. So the actual mass that's within an atom, which is what you are made of, is totally minuscule. And to demonstrate that, scientists say that if you took, if you sucked all the space out of all of our atoms in our body, if you took every human being on the planet and put our combined mass together, we would only equal one sugar cube, which (laughs) 
is an incredibly mind-blowing thing to contemplate. This is These are the types of things that I invite you to co- contemplate over the coming weeks. We are, there is just no such thing as a solid particle, no such thing as a solid atom, which means that there's no such thing as a solid human, a solid table and chair, a solid anything. We are, everything has got this um, complete nature of pure emptiness. And Chogyam Trumper gives a beautiful quote about this, this emptiness. He says, By relating with the ordinary conditions of your life, you may make a shocking discovery. While drinking your cup of tea, you might discover that you are drinking tea in a vacuum. In fact, you are not even drinking the tea. The hollowness of space is drinking tea. When you put your pants on or your skirt, you might find that you're dressing up space. And when you put your makeup on, you might discover that you are putting cosmetics on space. You are beautifying space, pure nothingness. I love that quote. I think it's it's so profound and it's so applicable to our, our daily lives. This is something that we can all contemplate as, as we go around our day and everything that we do. So he says that although we can we can understand this and we can see the science where does this illusion of solidness then come from? Why, why is it that we've got all empty particles, but we still see things as solid? And for this, scientists have, have looked at this as well, and they say that in an atom, the outermost shell of an atom, and of an electron, which is a particle within an atom, creates an electromagnetic force that repels other electromagnetic forces. So we've all held two magnets together in our life. And if you take the two, you know, north poles of the of the magnets and you hold them together, you can feel that that repulsion that exists. So he says you want to think of these particles um, in that way. They've already got, they've got a magnetic energy field that repels other particles with the same force. And he says that physicists refer to these particles as quantum probability clouds, where they say you look at the particles like the image of a cloud, and the clouds repel one another when they get close, which means that there's an illusion of contact because you've got these clouds. It looks like they're all connecting. Like if you took two clouds and put them next to each other, it looks like they connect. But in fact, there's a magnetic force that that is pushing them apart. And what that means is that you're not really touching anything. Right now, the chair you're sitting on or the cushion you're sitting on, you're actually floating, tiny little bit floating above everything else. So the clothes on your body, everything that has a different, you know, different particles and even your organs, everything has got this magnetic connection and the sense of, um, of the hovering. Um, nothing is actually there. And then um, he says that another illusion, which is what we touched on already, is of our senses. And this is what we call flicker fusion. Um, where we see things as this one continual stream, but in fact, we have um, it's actually flickering. And this is also because of these atoms, the particles like flicker, 
basically. And we, we, our eye joins up all these mil billions and billions of flickering particles and joins them together. And they say that light is nothing more, or appearance is nothing more than frozen light. There was a famous physicist called David Bohm, and he was actually a student of Einstein. He, he studied with Einstein, and after Einstein's death, he continued in, in these very amazing studies. And they found that light, he himself said that mass is a phenomenon of connecting light rays which go back and forth. So we've seen now that, that magnetic force, the light that's going bouncing back and forth between particles, and it gives a illusion that matter is condensed or frozen. And if we think about, you know, in the, the teachings where we hear of rainbow bodies and states of being where beings emanate light, they are able to free that illusion of solidity. They're able to free this light that um, is, is held and allow that light to shine through in, in its natural state. Um, his next illusion... So that was the illusion of form or solidity. The next illusion is the illusion that things are permanent or lasting. And this is probably one of the easier ones for us to accept because we already know in our lives that everything does change. Um, impermanence, the nature of everything is changing. But there's something called change blindness, which is also that because there's so many changes going on all the time, the way, again, the way we've evolved is to actually just focus on the things that are important to us. We don't necessarily even notice all the other changes that are happening or maybe don't even have the ability to see us. So they say that the most treasured sense of self we have is of our body. But even within our body, which we think is fairly stable, everything is changing. The only constant within your body is change. Our stomach lining is changed every five days. Our skin every two weeks. All your red, red blood cells are replaced every 120 days. You have a new liver once a year. Your lungs are replaced every six weeks. Your taste buds every 10 days. In fact, no matter how old you are, all the cells in your body are at most 10 years old. <laughs> Which is really mind-blowing um, and, and really, again, it's quite something to contemplate. So at an atomic level, it's this breakneck speed of change. If you've seen a nature documentary where they show, for instance, like, you know, the forest and you see all the, they put it in extra fast um, motion and you see everything build up and then you see the seasons change and everything go down, you see that everything, say, within a forest is in this constant motion of change. But within ourself as a system, it's the same thing. We are constantly just changing and, um, and yeah, we're just in a state of flux at all times. So, um, but we, do we don't, we don't, um, we don't actually see this. And he says that this thing of change blindness is, we can also see in our planet, um, we, we don't see the, the, the great changes necessarily happening on our planet all around us at all times. I mean, we see things like the seasons and so forth, but there's, there's been, there's currents under the earth. There's constant changes happening even within the stability of what we think of as the earth, even within our continents as they are today, will not exist in the form 
of the continents in the future, even that has changed. So we become so stuck on things, you know, we become so stuck on, on our map and this, the shape of Africa. But what is that? It's just a concept or an idea, a label that we've assigned something that is actually in a state of, of change. I read in another book, um, and I can't remember where, but he said, uh, the, the writer said that if we even look at we look at a map and we look at the coastline on a map. It's we, we draw things with these fairly straight lines. But in reality, if you go down to microscopic detail, and if you had to go in to every little curve, every nook, every stone, you know, nothing is a straight line. Nothing is as defined as we would like it to be. Even the border, we assign borders between things. And we we have these ideas that are just completely not true. So it helps to understand um, that everything is, is constantly changing. And then the third illusion, which is the illusion of that we are separate. And this can be probably one of the harder illusions to, to bust. And again, we can look at um, Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching on interbeing and this understanding that everything that comes, every single thing that we know and relate to has a relationship with everything else. So, if we even look at it at a level of a carbon atom, everything is made from carbon atoms, which come from, you know, the planets and space, stars, absolutely everything. And they say that if we could tag an atom of carbon, we would see it making its way, you know, it could be in the sea, it could be in the air, it could be on a star, it could be in the body of a creature, it could it could be burnt up in a fire. This at one atom of carbon has absolute, you know, billions of incarnations. And in a way, if we look at, he says, if we look at anything that says made in China, we could probably just replace that with made in Orion. Nothing is truly made anywhere. Everything is made from essentially stardust, these um, carbon particles. And you know, right now we are breathing in the air that every being that has lived within this um, atmosphere of our earth has breathed in. We are drinking the water that has passed through the bodies of countless beings. We, you know, it's, it's so amazing to think about it, how connected we all truly are. There's just no distance. Where do we take a breath of air and we say the air is outside of me to when the air becomes, we, we breathe in and, and then what? The air is now yours. There's, there is no, there is no separateness. It's, um, it's all, it's all just space. So that's a good overview of, of those three illusions. I'm not going to go into a lot more detail today. I'll just give a few other examples that he gives, which are really interesting, but I wonder if anyone has any questions or comments. It doesn't have to be a question. Sure. I think there's a different way of looking at that aspect of um, how he sees hearing. 
And um, I, the, the part of, I, I hear the part of reading, studying, listening to talks, etc. But when you go into, when you really, really go into hearing, really go into hearing, it becomes a non-I thing. When, when you can look at something that you described in a different way earlier on, um, when you look at a, a beautiful sky or you look at a droplet, instead of trying to assume a, a description onto it from this eye body, when you go into hearing, you, go, you eventually go into, into spirals of, of experience of hearing and listening and hearing and listening at different levels. Hearing becomes non-I. Listening becomes I. It becomes the movement of something and the container of something at the same time. So it becomes both the masculine and the feminine principle of movement and holding and nurture. So I'm saying that because hearing is is on on its extremely lowest level what was described here by by in the book. On the high on the higher level, and I would really not deem to be interpreting the highest, but um, on the higher level, it is. Um, it is non-commentable. You can't comment on it because you are not interpreting what you're hearing. The fact that you have entrained yourself to hear on a wide, on a on a on a on a on an immeasurable in an immeasurable way, and as you grow more and more immeasurable, you 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 listen to the whole in a in a deeper, wider way. Um, so. That's my one com that's my one comment about his comment on hearing. That hearing is very limited in the way that he describes it in, um, uh, as, as far as not he. That's just my experience of hearing and listening. And, yeah, and yeah, and and I think um, Lynn's uh, what just the to that, uh, the sixty percent of the brain is 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 dedicated to visual. I hundred percent agree, but ten times that's why. We are um, um, helped with, um, spoken with this ultimate level of hearing at the beginning of our life and the hearing at the very end of our life. Our ability to conceive hearing is primarily the primitive brain. It starts at three and a half, four months old. So it is a primitive brain that stems up and sifts out and listens to the mother's, the mother's receptive vehicle it's a receptive vehicle from the mother that stimulates all the growth and the all the at the right times of this little baby inside the womb so that then is also the last thing to disappear so when you have a spectrum of seeing he seems to have, have he seems to have been more a person to be as we all are trained on the visual spectrum so he's he's lining up is very much as I'm hearing from you, based on visual spectrum. We are probably in tra to, trained and uh, for 60% of our brain, but in fact, our visual spectrum is 10 times less than the audible spectrum. So when you go in the, in the dimension of 10, but 
just not in one direction. You have got a completely different reality. If you follow the reality of, of sound, I'm not talking about the description and entertainment of music. I'm talking about sound. That if you follow, followed the more masculine uh, principle of, of visual seeing, and that has its depth of dimension as well. But when you talk about sound, you also talk about sound and saying, as you said also earlier on, the appearance of freezing things, freezing appearances. It's very difficult to freeze appearances when you come to sound because you can turn around and say, do we all agree that we're hearing a sound? And we can all say, yes, definitely so. But there is no possibility that you can grasp that sound. So in other words, the fact that you can't grasp that sound, it, it leaves it in the dreamlike state or the illusory state, which is the most wonderful bridge between the world of form to the world of formlessness, which then gives us our, moves us into the archetype and our symbols and our deities and, and that sort of thing. And that's all I have to say. Sorry. <laughs> no, thanks, Linz. It's lovely to hear from your experience working with sound and, and hearing and so forth. And I think he's not saying um, that he's not saying that we should work with sight as a as a um, as a superior vehicle. It's more that the what we see is more likely to trap us into an illusion than other forms, for instance, what we hear. So exactly actually what you're saying, our hearing is less likely to be an issue for us than our sight, um, just because of the way that, that our brain works and attaches to, we are, you know, the way our brain works is, is to attach more to the sight. So with hearing and with sound, I suppose where sound um becomes where we want to transform sound is where we've attached meaning to the sound. So we hear a sound and instead of hearing it in its pure way, we hear it as that's a horrible sound, that's a beautiful sound. And it's it's that's the perception, that's the illusion that we're trying to um, break is that we, we shouldn't attach, we shouldn't attach labels to it. Can we just enjoy the pure presence of of that sound so and I, I totally agree with hearing you know that hearing is a multi-dimension thing he's giving it as the Zogchen texts give it as a wisdom tool for understanding these texts that you progress from hearing to concept and um, to um, contemplation to meditation but within the hearing itself the act of hearing we have the very a limited understanding or, or just the act of hearing then we have the contemplation and then the meditation which is that very very deep hearing where we are hearing with presence which is I think what what you're saying it's it's taking it into that state of being of hearing as opposed to just listening and, and intellectually trying to to make sense of it so within everything if if we're studying we can use that well if we we can use those three steps. It's just it's just three steps that the text give to help us to um, bring the teaching closer to within our heart, as opposed to just leaving it at an, at an intellectual level. So, I totally agree. Thanks so much for that. Any anyone else? Nicola, mm -hmm. very very simple and basic. If the body's in constant change 
and you have cancer of an organ. Now that organ's being replaced. Do we carry the message of sickness through? Because if it's a new organ, we should be okay. So as I understand it, what happens is, especially within our DNA, we the cells, the way cells replicate, we replicate the same message. So that's why even memory, you know, think about a memory. If every if memory is stored in your brain, if um your brain is replaced multiple times, why do we forget something? Or or how do we keep a memory, I should say, if if none of if there's no place for the memory to be kept? And it's that as cells replicate, the the messaging is is replicated on again. The organ is new, but the message is old. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and, and what we'll do is in the next time he gives the teachings of the illusory form, the, the core teachings, which are the eight consciousnesses. And there they talk about the store consciousness, which is where all of that messaging actually sits and how that then translates through all the other consciousnesses into our life and how if we're working on that store consciousness, we're effectively removing those seeds and that karma. We can then, exactly as things replicate, as we change, as we grow, we hope that we then are, are removing any any seeds that no longer serve us. Okay. Eric? I see a hand up. I'm not sure if... Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to add something about the cancer. Um, when they say you are what you eat, um, that's true. You know, everything you eat either feeds or fights, you know, like illness. So the problem with us, we get cancer. The cells are constantly in a state of regeneration. The problem is we don't change what we eat. And beyond what supersedes you are, what you eat is also you are what you think. You know, the way you see the world is exactly, you know, the difference between heaven and hell. But we don't change the way we think either. We don't even change our actions. So even though the organs are all replacing themselves, we keep on rebuilding them with the same negative food, the same negative thoughts, the same negative actions and the rest of it. So. Once you change what you eat, you change what you think, you change what you do, you change what you speak, then you can start to build, I believe, you know, organs that are without cancer. Just one aspect. That's it. Thanks. And again, that goes to that very, very deep store consciousness. So, of course, you get many people who have a disease and they do change what they eat and they do work on their relationships, but actually the disease doesn't change. And that could be because... It is so ingrained. It is, it's so deeply part of your habituated conditioning that you haven't quite got there to release it. And perhaps, you know, in this lifetime, your journey might not be to, to release it, but, but that could then plant the seed perhaps for a future lifetime. So it's, it's, I think it's just these layers, um, of, of conditioning of cramps, right? It's, it depends how deep in the cramp, um, we are and and then how that manifests i think in our in our lives so does anyone else want to share anything or i'll give a few other examples quite fun things to contemplate um that he talks about so he says one of our main illusions is the illusion of which is quite interesting is the illusion of the present moment that there is something called the present moment 
And he goes into a lot of the stuff around the relativity um, theory and so forth. But one of the things is that if we attach, we shouldn't attach to the present moment. And this is why, you know, even in Buddhist, Buddhism, you often hear in the mantras, you hear about the four times, which is the past, the present, the future, and then the now, or which is the which isn't a concept, it's it's literally the only thing that we can truly be, which is in the now. So we also need to be aware of not trying to attach to the this idea of the present moment. And he says, try and think about it. What is the present moment? Can you define it? Can you actually ever really experience the present moment? And he gives the example of the sun and how the sunlight that we feel on our skin at any given moment has taken... Um, I think it's something like eight minutes to reach us. So even if you are looking at the sunset and saying, oh, I'm in the present moment, isn't the sunset wonderful? The truth is that the sun is already set and you are seeing the light rays from eight minutes ago. So this is, this is what he means by this illusion of the present moment. The way we perceive time isn't necessarily um, what we think it is. And therefore, all you can truly ever know is what they call the fourth time, which is now. Um, so it's it's this nowness that gets us to a place of eternity. Of course, we can still say the present moment, but his point that he's making here is don't make the present moment into another concept that we try to attach to. Another example is um, the example of free will. And there's been a lot of studies, neuroscientists have done a lot of studies on the brain and this concept of free will. And they talk about some neuroscientists have discovered something in our brain, which is called the readiness potential. And there's actually an electrical shift that happens in our brain when an action is being prepared. So the interesting thing is that like, they would watch participants in the study and before, the, say, they would move their arm, a full second before even doing reflexive actions, what you would think to be a reflexive action, the electromagnetic response has already um, been fired off in the brain. So it's that there's this sense that our actions are not entirely as free will as we think. And so to take the study further, they went and offered people different sets of choices that they had to pick between two different things. And often the participants, the brain would make the choice or fire indicating it's made a choice um, seven seconds before a choice was actually made. They, they had already um, unconsciously made a choice. And this is this is this layering that we, we learn about um, where we've got the unconscious and then the conscious and how everything comes from that ground of the unconscious into the conscious. So what we That's take... Sorry, Lex. That's called the that that love that space is called the lacuna. That that space of 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 coming from something that's almost pre-prescribed. It's just called a lacuna. It's the most wonderful word. Yeah. Lacuna. Yeah. Yeah. That voidness, the groundlessness, and voidness, and which is also very beautiful is the darkness. You know, we often think of the unconscious as the darkness, and. We think of and um, we we addicted to light. We always want enlightenment, and we want to be in the light. And we've got this this aversion to darkness. But actually, the unconscious is this very fertile place where where things 
where things grow out of and come from. And so it's that, that beautiful journey. But our idea that we are so in control and making decisions, actually everything comes from, again, what's called the store consciousness, which is a body consciousness. The store consciousness is something that sits within us. It's not something that we manufacture with our, our conscious awareness. Um, the other illusion, again, so, so tying into that, um, he talks about the illusion of choice, and they did a whole lot of studies on what they called um, taste blindness. And for instance, they would offer, they did a study with jam, and they, they offered all these people their different jams, and they said to them, which is your favorite jam? And when they swapped them around, people couldn't actually distinguish that they weren't tasting their blueberry jam, they were tasting like cherry jam. But they were so set on their particular choice that they actually wouldn't be able to distinguish the difference. So we, we, our brains, you know, the, these things completely rule our lives. Um, another thing he talks about is the illusion of memory. Um, you know, memory is known to be extremely fallible and how our memories change constantly throughout our lives. They say that actually when you, uh, when you reach a certain age, you know, looking back, they say that up to 95% of what we believe about even yesterday, which is based on our memory, is um, not entirely accurate as to how it happened. So as we recount things, especially as we get older and we recount experiences that happened to us, the chances that we've changed it um, and we are now living a false memory is very high and that's very interesting and like if you think about when you've lived through perhaps a traumatic event or if you've lived through you know some event in your life that you consider to be a defining moment because we hold on to these things as part of again our identity and our label of who we are but actually our memory of it and and what it is potentially very very different so it's it's around releasing um that that illusion or releasing trying to release our attachment to our memories more than than anything else so um one last thing i'll just mention um he go i mean it's really wonderful he goes into hypnosis multiple personalities um psychedelics but one really interesting thing he talks about is is the placebo effect and he says isn't the placebo effect the placebo effect is the most it's actually the mind effect. So the placebo effect is not an unreliable or, or proving, you know, it's actually the most reliable effect in pharmacology. And that it's actually, we, we think of the placebo effect. Sometimes when they do a study and they'll say, oh, that was just, just the placebo effect. Well, isn't that in, incredible? Just the placebo effect shows how much, um, our mind actually influences our life and our, our healing and so forth. So um, I think I'll leave it there for today. I just want to see if I had any other notes on this. But, I mean, I think you guys get the, the gist of it. Basically, everything we think we know, the things that we relate to, are just not what we, we take them to be. So really asking yourself, am I dreaming? What is reality? Feeling that 
openness, feeling our contractions, um, playing with that, mixing our mind with space. You know, we contract around a certain idea um, to give that openness, to allow that space to come in and not to believe everything that we think. The voice in our head is not actually to be believed, um, to to just look at things from a different perspective. Um, yeah, and that's that's really what I thought I'd share today. And then next time we'll look more into the actual um, Tibetan Buddhist practices of illusory form and, you know, how we can start to use those in our waking lives. But I don't know if there's any other comments or questions. It's been fabulous. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you very, very much. I find it fascinating. It truly is fascinating. And that's why they say... You know, like the Heart Sutra, if you could truly understand these teachings, you can't not be amazed. You can't not be mind blown because it is the nature of reality is so different to how we perceive it to be that it is actually quite terrifying. If the reason we busy ourselves with action and activity and noise is because the, the groundlessness of the nature of reality makes us so uncomfortable. We want to be anything except non-existent so we'll do anything to try and and fill that space it's it's quite mind-blowing so um yeah we've got an exciting journey ahead most of us <laughs> lots lots of lots of things to work on and contemplate but um thank you i think we can then well, that concludes another episode of the Wisdom Toolbox podcast. I hope you enjoyed it or found something beneficial within the episode to aid you on your journey. I would love to hear from you. Please follow along on social media and visit the wisdomtoolbox.com website for more resources and sign up for our monthly newsletter and offering. Thanks for stopping by.